I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're diving into the recent controversy surrounding the NBA and China. On October 4, 2019, general manager of the NBA's Houston Rockets, Daryl Morey, caused an international uproar with colossal economic and political consequences with just this single tweet. Fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. Despite the NBA's prevalence in China as the country's most popular sports league, the Chinese government and Chinese companies were quick to cut all ties with the Rockets franchise, pulling sponsorship deals and suspending game broadcasting. The NBA now finds itself in a tug of war between staying in the good graces of one of its largest markets and supporting its employee and his freedom of speech. The NBA is not the first company to suffer the consequences of China's ire, and foreign companies are facing an increasingly difficult landscape to continue operations in China. To discuss China's retaliation against the NBA, as well as the larger questions surrounding the Chinese government's treatment of foreign private companies, I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Victor Cha. Victor is a senior advisor and holds the Korea chair at CSIS. He is also vice dean and a professor of government, as well as the holder of the DS Song KF chair in the Department of Government and the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. His article, entitled Flagrant Foul, China's Predatory Liberalism and the NBA, is going to be in the December issue of the Washington Quarterly. Victor, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the China Power podcast. Thanks so much, Bonnie. So Americans reacted really strongly to the NBA controversy. And yet it really struck me that prior instances, such as when China was coercing foreign airlines to change their websites to use the phrase Taiwan, China, showing that Taiwan was part of China, Americans didn't seem to react to that very much. Another example would be the mass incarceration of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. There really hasn't been an uproar. And yes, this incident really engaged Americans and provoked a very strong reaction. So tell us why. So it's a great question. And unfortunately, I think one of the answers is that when there's a hard news story that's broadcast on ESPN, there are more Americans who listen to that than who may listen to NPR or even the China Power podcast for that matter. So I think it is because um, this is sort of really an everyman story, if you will, as opposed to more specialized audiences who pay attention to this. And, you know, this is you know, potentially one of the downsides of China making such a big deal out of this is that it's gotten many more Americans to pay attention and to even understand the whole question of Hong Kong, China, that they probably were not paying a lot of attention to before. So it is about sports, but it's whenever you have this combination of sports and hard politics mixing together, as we've seen when Beijing hosted the Olympics in 2008 or when Russia hosted the Olympics at Sochi, whenever you have this combination of sports and hard politics coming together, it just seems to resonate more with a broader audience. Do you think that this is going to be short-lived, or is this going to have an enduring impact on how Americans view China? Again, that's a hard question to answer. Um, I think Americans are certainly much will be much more aware of the overall situation and the protests that are taking place in Hong Kong. Whether that really translates into any sort of change in public opinion 
it's hard to say. I mean, as you know well, I think in the United States, there are segmented narratives on China among the general public. There is you know, a narrative that we, that we have traditionally seen in the business community that tends to be very bullish on China in terms of the markets and their future. There's a narrative in D.C. that's different. These days, it's taken quite a turn towards competition and China as a strategic competitor. But then in this area of sports entertainment and popular culture, there really isn't a dominant narrative with regard to China. China is not seen as the enemy in the sense because China, frankly, has done a good job with Hollywood to ensure that China is not portrayed as, as the enemy. And so this in the sports entertainment and pop culture segment of the narrative may be the dominant narrative, right? Because if anything, it's been the absence of a China narrative in this particular segment. And that may be the long-lasting impact of this in terms of the American public opinion is that perhaps in what was an empty space that the Chinese wanted to keep as empty space on views of China, this will have a much more negative connotation to it. So in your article, you write about examples where China has used coercion against countries in particular. And it's been almost 10 years since China retaliated against the Norway Nobel Peace Prize Commission for awarding the Peace Prize to Liu Xiaobo, who uh, was in jail. And then you talk about the instance where uh, South Korea decided to deploy the THAAD missile system, and China, of course, took retaliatory actions against them. In the case of Norway, it was both political and economic. It was They weren't buying salmon from them, and I think it was also political and economic in the case of the THAAD deployment, particularly against the Lotte uh, company. And my question is really why you chose those cases, because when I was reading the article, I was thinking about these foreign companies that provoked a very strong Chinese reaction when they did things that China didn't like. And we had the example where The Gap printed a map of China on a T-shirt that didn't include Taiwan. And I think that they were threatened to have their stores shut down. Uh, It also didn't have the South China Sea nine-line map. And we have the case of Marriott, which apparently its website was shut down when it had listed Hong Kong, Taiwan, Tibetan, and Macau as separate countries. So there are many cases like this where companies have really scrambled to issue apologies because they didn't want to get shut out of the Chinese market. And those seem very relevant to me. That's a great question. And I've sought feedback on this piece from you and others. And this has been one of the things that has come up the most is sort of the relevance of particular cases. So part of the reason I chose the cases that I chose, as you described, the Norway, the Philippines, Korea, and Japan, was because I read some of your work <laughs> on <laughs> economic coercion by China when they were undertaking these practices. And, you know, I do think, yes, the NBA is a private company, just like the Gap or Marriott or others are. But what struck me about the NBA case and China's actions against the NBA case is it, that what they did with the NBA fits very much with this concept of predatory liberalism that I talk about in the paper, this essentially the use of market dependence but whether it's states or whether it's private companies, and it's, it's essentially blocking access to that market for the purposes of achieving political goals. So there are other cases like the Gap Brothers where they take specific actions to punish the company, like shutting down the website or not allowing Marriott to open another branch. And that is a punitive action. But that resonated less with the concept of predatory liberalism that I was trying to build in the piece and in the research, where I see a lot of similarities between what China was doing, for example, with Norway 
on denying access. I mean, the NBA is a cultural export, right? Salmon is an export, a culinary export by Norway. And there was a very similar sort of method of operation that I saw there that fit well with this concept of predatory liberalism. But I think if I had more space, I would have done all the cases. But the commercial cases, I think, are quite relevant as well. Well, since you raised the concept which you wrote about in the article of predatory liberalism, can you talk a little bit about why Beijing is able to employ this strategy and how you think that it applies in this case? Yeah. So predatory liberalism is, is essentially the idea that China supports global open trading order until it doesn't. In other words, it reaps the benefits of the global trading order, but when it seeks to use that sort of interdependence for political purposes, it has no qualms about doing so, right? Market interdependence is certainly about mutual benefit and increasing overall productivity, but it also is about vulnerability. We create vulnerabilities when we trade with each other. And so China is very good at, expert at using that vulnerability to their advantage when they need to do so for political purposes. Why does China do this uh, more effectively than others? I think, well, part of the answer is that, for one, they're committed to it because there's a political reason behind doing this, not an economic one. It's a political reason. And two, they have less concern about violating the non-discriminatory clause of WTO rules when they undertake these actions. They see these as exceptional actions that is within their sovereign right to do so. And other countries might be less inclined to do that because of the reputational costs, but in, in China's case, because of their political commitment to it, they just push forward with it. Now, you advocate in this article that the NBA should hold the line. It should stand up to China, essentially regardless of the consequences. We don't really know what all of those consequences would be. It may be that the NBA totally loses its market in China, which is very significant. We'll talk afterwards about whether there would be pushback from the Chinese. But I wonder first if you would address whether you think it's really realistic to expect that the NBA would stand up to China and take a position that is based solely on values and put at risk all of the profit that it's making. Yeah. So naturally, I think the reflexive reaction by the league and by the agents of all the NBA players in the league is to focus on salvaging the potential monetary losses that come from standing up for a principle. My argument in the paper is not to say that the NBA should go out there and be with the protesters in Hong Kong, whether this is in China, or be political at all. My, the main point of the article was to say that while it is not the NBA's role to be a political crusader, if any of its players or if its personnel do make a statement about a political event, then the NBA should not shut them down. They should be allowed to make those political statements if they choose to do so, and they do so not as a representative of the NBA, but as a human being or as an American, right? And that's what I think happened with Daryl Morey was that, you know, clearly he had been following this issue closely and he tweeted on his personal account, not on the Houston Rockets account. And so my point is not that the NBA should go out there and, you know, stand up with a flag and and try to ally with the protesters in Hong Kong, but that it should be more tolerant of players who seek to send messages because they do so as human beings or as Americans. You know, of all the sports, professional sports leagues in the United States, the NBA arguably is the most politically progressive and open 
when it comes to issues of this nature, certainly when it comes to domestic politics. In the United States, you know, the NBA has pulled the all-star game from cities that have discriminatory practices and things of this nature. So if there's any league that should be more open to this in not gagging their players, if they say something, it's the NBA. So Chinese citizens generally have reacted very strongly and in support of their government when there have been instances in their territorial integrity, sovereignty perceived to be under threat. This is certainly true in the case of 2012 when the Japanese government purchased uh, some of the Senkaku Islands, which are disputed with China, which they call the uh, Diaoyu Islands. Uh, We saw protests that were in the street. I don't recall any instance of a Chinese citizen standing up and saying, but they think that their relationship with Japan is really important, despite the fact that the Japanese purchased these islands. So what I'm suggesting is that we have really a case of nationalism run amok in China. Yet my read of your article is that you suggest that Chinese consumers are such avid fans uh, of basketball that if their access to being able to view um, NBA games is limited, that maybe they might push back against the government. And so, again, if the NBA holds the line, it might sort of win the day. Not only will they be seen as doing the right thing in America, but maybe the Chinese citizens ultimately will put pressure on their government to let the NBA have their access restored, if that read is correct. So tell me if I'm correctly characterizing what you think. And if that is correct, then why do you think that this is the case? Why will this be different than other cases we have seen? So I definitely think that in the eyes of the Chinese people, the NBA is certainly different from Japan in the sense that the NBA has a fairly long history in China, and it's all been good. It's all been good, whether you're talking about the initial efforts by Chinese players to play in the NBA. Actually, the first Chinese player to play professional basketball in the United States was actually a woman who played for the LA Sparks. But then, of course, with Yao Ming, that's when, the, that's when we saw the explosion of popularity. NBA teams, championship teams have gone to play exhibition games in China. So there's a real love, a mutual relationship between the two sides that, unlike most other histories, has been almost entirely positive. As you mentioned, it's the number one team sport in China today. And so I think that history is one thing. And the numbers show it. I mean, there are probably more people that watched Yao Ming play against Shaquille O'Neal in the first game than I think the entire population of the United States. I mean, this is the scale that we're talking about. So I think in that sense, there is a relationship there that's entirely positive and that Chinese consumers, so if we take the case of salmon in Norway, for example, Chinese consumers may not have been, because of the government ban, may not have been able to eat Norwegian salmon anymore, but they could eat Scottish salmon. Arguably, there is no substitute for the NBA in China. Chinese consumers may say, all right, well, we can't watch the Rockets anymore, so we'll just watch European basketball. It's just not the same. I don't think it has the same. So I think there's something different about the NBA and other professional sports like the NFL, the MLB, have tried to replicate this, but with not the degree of success that the NBA has achieved in China. So I think there is something to the fact that Chinese consumers, if NBA games are blacked out you know, permanently, 
they're not going to be happy with that. And, you know, they may express that in social media. They may express it somewhere. But the Chinese government doesn't like to see critical comments about what the government is doing on social media, even if there's nationalism involved. And then the final thing here is I, I say that it's not a question of whether the NBA has to win. You know, this isn't a basketball game where one side has to win, the other side has to lose. It's simply that from the NBA's perspective, they should not be placing implicit gag orders on players now so they can talk about Ukraine, they can talk about it, but they cannot talk about China. Um, that sort of gag order, whether it's coming from agents or it's coming from management, would be the NBA losing, right? And I think there is a place that you can find where the, the two have to reach a mutual understanding that there's no implicit gag order. And if players choose to speak out because they care about the issue, they do so as individuals, not as representatives of the NBA. So I want to cite a different episode that took place recently in the gaming world. So in early October, a professional video gamer won a match in the Hearthstone Grandmasters competition, and he used a post-game interview to voice his support for the Hong Kong protesters. The gaming company Blizzard removed him from the competition, revoked his winnings, suspended him from all Hearthstone esports competitions for a year, obviously concerned about negative reaction from China. So, I mean, in these kinds of instances, um, you know, don't we end up with companies who they're going to overreact, some are perhaps going to exercise self-censorship, they're all very afraid of bowing to Chinese pressure. And it looks to me like if more and more companies do that, then, you know, the Chinese have won before any company actually really does anything because people are concerned about losing the market and these mm -hmm, negative mm -hmm. um, reactions. So how do we avoid getting caught in this spiral of how the fear of reaction from China then is going to dictate policies, whether it's the MBA or a gaming company? We just end up in this world where companies are essentially doing China's bidding. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, that's often said that is sort of the most nefarious form of power when you don't have to actually use force to get someone to do what you want them to do. And that, I think, with all of these examples is what China is trying to socialize both governments and private sector companies to do, is to basically stay away from anything that has to do with Hong Kong, Tibet, Xinjiang, Taiwan. I think this reaction by esports competition was clearly an overreaction. And the spiral or the trap is exactly the one that you described because all of these companies or governments are incentivized to cave to Chinese pressure as a way to try to save short-term profit or short-term market share or short-term access. And it may have that sort of effect, but in the long term, it just ensures that there will be more Chinese pressure, not less. And so... By doing this, companies or governments are reducing their autonomy in the future in China. And you presume that their interaction with China will only grow. It's not going to become smaller. So I think there's a lot at stake here. And even though these are small individual cases, whether you're talking about the Gap or Norwegian Salmon or esports, these all seem like small isolated cases. But they, in the aggregate, add up to a strategy that China is executing to try to socialize the world into staying away from certain issues when it comes to China and blatantly using market access as a way to do this. So again, like the, the NBA, I think, is a, potentially a very unique case because 
arguably in all of these other cases, there is not much of a stake for the Chinese people in it. Like, I mean, how many Chinese people really care about whether they eat Scottish or Norwegian salmon? But Chinese people love the NBA. I mean, they love it. They idolize the players. So that might make this a little bit different. Yeah, in addition to the uh, salmon example, there have been cases where Chinese tourists were not able to travel to countries such as the Philippines uh, when it had a standoff in 2012 in Scarborough Shoal with China and then, of course, filed the case uh, on the nine-dash line that was ultimately the ruling was in favor of the Philippines by the arbitral tribunal under the convention, the law of the sea. And I I suppose that maybe some Chinese had had plans to go to the Philippines and maybe weren't happy that they couldn't go there, but there's always many other places that right. they can go. So uh, reinforces your point, or buying um, bananas uh, or other tropical fruits. There's probably other sources if they didn't come from the Philippines. Right, or like the tourism ban on Chinese tourists going to South Korea for the Winter Olympics, right? I mean, so there is only one Winter Olympics every four years, but Frankly, how many Chinese people are that avid fans of winter sports that they're that angered by not being able to go? The NBA, on the other hand, we're talking about hundreds of millions of Chinese people who enjoy the NBA, whether it's through live streaming or on CCTV. We're not talking about thousands. We're talking about hundreds of millions of people. And I wonder what the channels would be for airing that kind of dissatisfaction. So if the Chinese go out on their WeChat and try to post something that's negative about the government and that decision, maybe that just gets taken down. Mm-hmm. We we know the Chinese are not going to take to the streets with signs right. that are calling for having the NBA allowed back into China. Yeah. So what do you think that would look like? Well, first, the answer is I don't know. Right? We don't know the answer to that question specifically. But Again, I would go back to scale. Scale, I think, matters. And you know, if there are two Chinese who are like, I, I don't eat Philippine bananas anymore. I want more Philippine bananas. That's Maybe they can take those down. But when there are like 500 million Chinese who say, like, I want to watch the NBA finals and you're not letting me watch them, that's a different thing. I mean, game six of the NBA finals last year, there was something like 300 million Chinese people watched the game six of the NBA finals. I don't think there are 300 million Chinese eating Philippine bananas. Yeah. <laughs> So years ago, you wrote a great book about sports and diplomacy and about some of the positive role that sports has played in international politics. And of course, we think back to the U.S.-China relationship and the origins in the Nixon era where there was ping pong diplomacy, which of course played an important role in the thawing of the bilateral U.S.-China relationship in the early 1970s. So is there a scenario in which some kind of sports exchanges could play a positive role in the relationship? Is there some version of basketball diplomacy or something else that might be able to build uh, a more positive U.S.-China relationship? Or has that day gone? Hopefully that day has not gone. I think that sports, as you said, has historically played a very positive role in relations between the United States and Chinese government, but also between the American and Chinese people. You know, what to me is so interesting about the ping pong diplomacy case was that when that ping pong team showed up on the cover of Time magazine, it was the reaction by the American public that was positive, that actually gave Nixon and Kissinger the confidence to continue to pursue their secret diplomacy with Zhou Enlai. So it's played a huge role, not just between governments, but between people. In 1979, with normalization, the Washington Bullets, who were then NBA champions, were invited to China 
to play exhibition games in China, sort of at the start of the fully normalized relations between the two countries. So there's a really deep and rich history of sports between the American and Chinese people that I hope will continue. And basketball certainly is one of the primary vehicles for that. You know, it is a business for the NBA, and they have a huge financial stake in China going forward. But every year there are NBA players that are going to China that are treated like heroes, who are NBA players who are learning Chinese so that they go to China and give clinics and just create goodwill between the two people. And I think what's different, again, about the NBA is that it's the scale. I mean, this is the number one sport in China today. When you, as you have gone, like you go to China and you just see kids playing basketball everywhere. And that is, it's seen as a quintessentially American sport, something that Chinese look up to in terms of the quality of the play and, and everything. And so I hope that there will continue to be opportunities for the NBA basketball to be a vehicle for cultural diplomacy between the two countries, you know, despite this particular incident. We've been talking with Dr. Victor Cha, who is senior advisor and holder of the Korea Chair at CSIS and also vice dean and professor of government at Georgetown University. Thanks so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. <laughs>